Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. So we've talked a lot with our great friend Scott Newark, former Alberta Crown Attorney, uh, Executive Director of the Police of the Canadian Police Association, Senior Policy Advisor to Federal and Ontario Ministers of Public Safety, and Vice Chair of the Ontario Office for Victims of Crime, which uh, the then Ontario government, Dalton McGuinty, disbanded when they have 50 million bucks in the kitty. And I'm still trying to find out where that $50 million went. Probably general revenues. Though there's more and more uh, news that has to do with criminal activity in the justice system. And, uh, and that includes the NCR verdicts, not criminally responsible. There's a story over the last couple of days about a chronic offender in British Columbia. 14 times he's been released, which means that at least 13 times he's been arrested. And uh, he's got a history of um, shoplifting, of random assaults. He has a, a pretty long history in addictions, but he also has mental health issues. And uh, there's a collision. I just heard Scott say something there. There's a there's a there's a collision. I think sometimes between criminal activities, the justice system, mental health issues, and how they try to handle this, how the justice system tries to handle it. What I'm trying to say is that what we're experiencing now, and Scott and I have talked about this because I've known him for 35 years, and everything you know about the justice system, I learned from Scott Newark. What we're experiencing, Scott, and you've said it. What we're experiencing is, if not an exact repetition of what happened in the early 90s, it's not that far removed. Yeah, there are definitely some similarities, and um, I'm glad you started with the uh, BC case because I think it is reflective of sort of a realization that is going on all across Canada, uh, in all the different provinces, and, and keep in mind that the kinds of jurisdictions um, that we're uh, dealing with, uh, it may be the federal government that makes, for example, the criminal law, but it's the provincial governments that, generally speaking, make the uh, medical, including mental health uh, laws, and as well the uh, laws that uh, would potentially deal with homelessness. So it is a complicated situation, and that, um, I think, is the reality that more and more governments and public officials and even the people who are themselves the ones who are, you know, the addicts and the homeless and people with mental health are realizing the way that we're doing things right now, however well-intentioned it might have originally been, is just not working, because it's those three issues. uh, addictions, um, mental health issues, and homelessness that seem to be coming together. And I think the case in British Columbia that you're describing is a real demonstration of how the system, and again, as I say, however well-intentioned, is not working and is actually um, an illustration of why we need to have some substantive reforms, some of which we're beginning to see. You know, British Columbia is going to reverse its policies and not allow for a public uh, injection of drugs. Saskatchewan just announced $90 million to help deal with uh, addictions issues and homelessness issues. Other provinces are sort of beginning to realize that we're going to have to do something. And, 
you know, I, I admit my sort of inclination towards doing this. Uh, I think there are some lessons learned for us from existing legislation. Because don't, you know, we can never forget we live in a charter-compliant world that we could actually draft some legislative and policy and even funding reforms to try to get a handle on this. Because if we don't, it's only going to get worse. Scott, if you've got 14 releases, that means you've been detained at least 13 times. Yeah. That right there, if you need a, if you need a, an example of a system failing, there it is. Yeah, really, no kidding, hey? I mean, seeing as how one of the statutory grounds for denying somebody bail is that there's a, you know, reasonable uh, grounds to believe that the individual of his release is going to commit more offenses. But, you know, we've changed, you know, I've talked about this particular thing for, you know, decades, and even in the story, it's incorrectly reported uh, that, you know, people, it goes back into the uh, mid and late 90s when provincial court, some provincial court judges in Ontario started saying, you know, um, the uh, remand system, which is people who were denied bail, is really unfair because there's no real rehabilitative efforts or focus in that. And so that's not something that's fair, and the, you know, the legislature should deal with that. And the Harris government did, did not do anything. And so the judges themselves started saying, well, okay, we're going to award pretrial credit and extra pretrial credit so that if you're denied uh, bail... We recognize that you're in tougher circumstances. And so, for example, you know, we'll give you two-for-one credit for if you've been denied bail. And then after a couple of months, it got up to three-for-one credit and even reached the point at four-for-one credit. And it spread all across the country. So how do you handle that as a prosecutor? How would a police officer handle that? But let's go to you. You're the prosecutor. You know that's the reality. How do you deal with that? Well, let me tell you, first of all, I experienced it uh, as a prosecutor back in Alberta, uh, back in the, uh, the 80s, when, um, you know, we had circumstances of repeat offenders and uh, in some cases high risk, others just sort of like, there was, I remember a case where, you know, they were all doing uh, break and enters. And, um, you know, we, the cases got brought together and they were denied bail. And you know what happened in those days? It was known as dead time, so they pled guilty. Now, with this new approach to things, what we're ending up doing is rewarding repeat offenders, because you know what? Nobody understands better than the bad guys and their lawyers, okay, who get paid more the longer they're on the file, um, that they will benefit from this. And so as a result of these decisions coming in, I remember checking some years ago on some of the crime stats reporting, the number of people that were actually in remand, in other words, had been denied bail by comparison to people in custody, had just skyrocketed. Because as I said before, nobody figured it out better than the bad guys. Mm -hmm. And what I find really annoying about this, Roy, is that when you look at this closely is, you know, lacking a social life, I do, Section 719, subsection 3 of the criminal code that is the one that's cited for this, it does not make it mandatory that this be done, despite what most people, you know, report or what you read in the, in the media about this stuff. It's not mandatory. And in fact, if you read the 
uh, legislation, even clearly, it says that if somebody is denied bail because of the offense that they were charged with, then the court may award, you know, pretrial credit at the time of sentencing. So, so I got I got to say this to you. Uh, for most people, lawyer talk kind of glazes our eyes over. Uh, and, and you do it really well. I mean, you, you describe things so that we understand. I certainly understand you after 30 years. But what we're dealing with as well is this catch and release reality, right? And, and this is what people are concerned about. They hear about somebody who's been detained, somebody who's been arrested, somebody who's been convicted, and all of a sudden, they're out. And then they're rearrested. And they're retried, and they're reconvicted, and they go back to jail. The recidivism rate used to be 76%. I don't know what it is now. But that is what really, do, really troubles people. I talked with Don Edwards, and you know Don. Yeah, yeah. Buffalo Sabres goaltender, Team Canada goaltender. He and I talked on Friday, so day before yesterday. They're still trying, the Edwards family, they're still trying to get George Lovey, who murdered Don's parents uh, in cold blood, and now is uh, making his way through the parole board. He's got a, he's got a four or five days off. He has an apartment. You know, he's out. He's out. But he wants full parole. And Don is asking, and his wife Tannis are asking, and we were talking about that, where's he get his money from? Who's paying for this? But this is what really disturbs people. Here's a double murderer, and the parole board is... It appears to be leaning over backwards to accommodate him, and that drives people mad. Yeah, and that reality is something that's not confined to just how the parole system is dealing with things. Look at, remember the Paul Bernardo case, oh, we're going to reduce the security classification, or the number of offenders who've been released, you know, who are repeat offenders and go on and commit uh, more crimes. Mm-hmm. That's how I got involved, really, in the, the whole public policy world, was a, a case out in Alberta. And it's, um, in fact, one of the most aggravating circumstances, I think, and you're quite correct that it does cross lines of, of the system itself is, um, that it ends up that, you know, we rarely get real independent review of what's happened in something. It's just, you know, the system ends up sort of reviewing itself. Yeah. And that really undermines public trust. That's what I was so impressed about when Premier Eby, in the that case that we talked about before, about the guy that was uh, released uh, he would had been found not criminally responsible, and he was released, even though he'd been found a high risk. And he went out and he stabbed three people at the Chinatown event in Vancouver. And Premier Eby said, "Well, look at it. You know, this this makes no sense. So I'm going to do an independent review of what actually took place here." Yeah. And I think that's what we need a lot more of. All right, uh, not criminally responsible. I get the fundamentals of it. I understand why it's there. Is it being? Is it being treated in a little bit of a fast and loose manner, Scott, or am I missing something? Um, I think it's more of a um, systemic issue about how it works. It is a very, very uh, detailed and complicated process that is laid out in the Criminal Code of Canada. It's part 20.1 for anybody who wants to go look it up. And the bottom line is, and I, I did not have... I think I had two cases in my entire time where it would, and in those days we used to call it insanity. Um, but um, it's a very complicated process. You've got, as you can imagine, given that, and the criminal code actually requires it, that the disorder that is being claimed as the basis of the defense is 
got to be something that's recognized professionally. Okay, they have what was called the uh, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual that is essentially the playbook of psychiatry. And it's the basis of it is that, uh, first of all, the court's got to be satisfied that you did what you're charged with, but that the defense exists because of mental disorder that was such that you didn't know what you were doing or that you didn't know it was wrong. Well, let me stop you. Let me stop you for a second. There have been cases where individuals have drunk themselves into oblivion. They've had so much alcohol that they they're just blotto and they commit heinous crimes in that condition. And courts have found that they were too drunk to know what they were doing. Well, I've always said nobody forced that stuff down your throat. Yeah, and that issue has actually bounced back and forth uh, over the uh, the last couple of decades about whether or not self-induced intoxication uh, is always going to be a recognizable defense. But this one is different because it's based on sort of professionally recognized mental health issues. Um, I think the real problem with it is, is that, number one, once that determination is made, and again, you're entering the world of the, you know, we know best of uh, the medical profession, and in particular the mental health medical profession, and it's... um, Success is measured in the sense of, oh, you know, we've transformed this guy and everything is wonderful, as opposed to an accurate reflection on what got that person there in the first place. Because whether they're declared to be NCR or not, I think from a societal perspective, we need to always keep in mind uh, they committed the crime. Okay, so that's got to be something that is actually kept in mind, and to a certain extent, but I don't think enough, it is in the uh, criminal code where there's different categories of classifications. Yeah, well, Scott, there was a case, I mean, just the other day, the woman who pushed uh, uh, an individual under, under the subway tracks in Toronto was found to be NCR. Right. Uh, And assuming, I don't know the details of the case, but assuming even that there was evidence that justified that, I think the major problem with the system is what happens next. Yeah. Because it goes into this bureaucratic process, okay, and the individual gets to have their medical status renewed every year. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.